Have you ever had to memorize something and done so by putting it to music? It's a good trick. Um, many of you know Eric Hopkins, uh, who used to attend here before having to move away. Uh, Eric, when he first started at uh, the University of Nebraska, one of the things that he did is he had a song that he would sing to his class to help them memorize the quadratic formula. And it was really funny because uh, that was my first interaction with Eric is as his teaching supervisor and hearing that he was singing to his class. And I thought, what's going on here? But he had a cool song that helped his class to memorize the quadratic formula because music actually does teach. And the words to the songs we sing do actually matter because they're being hidden away in your heart whether you know it or not. And so we were going to do our dedication service next week, and I had this sermon all planned out for this week that was going to be preparing, preparing our hearts for the dedication service a week from now. And then the dedication service got moved, and I thought, oh, what am I going to preach on? Because I've got to change things up. And it occurred to me, why not preach about one of the songs that Myra has already chosen out and to walk through the theology of that song? So it's one that we haven't sung yet, but we're going to look at what does it mean that our sin is nailed to the cross. Turning your Bibles to the book of Colossians, as we do applied theology today, the book of Colossians is going to be our source text. And we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 15. Before I actually read the passage, I want to set the stage for you a little bit in explaining the letter of Colossians, the book of Colossians itself. Um, Paul wrote Colossians to the church at Colossae probably around A.D. 62. At this time, there was a heresy that was beginning to bud called Gnosticism. It really wasn't fully developed yet, and so I would call it proto-Gnosticism. But Gnosticism held that there was some secret knowledge that you needed to attain. If you could attain this secret knowledge, then you could have some sort of eternal hope. But anybody who didn't have the secret knowledge was in a lot of trouble. And it really ended up teaching that Jesus wasn't sufficient. They taught that Jesus was good, Jesus was helpful, but beyond Jesus, you needed something more. You needed to know more than just Jesus. Jesus wasn't enough. And so the Apostle Paul, in writing the book of Colossians, is attacking that belief that Jesus isn't enough. Paul's argument in the book of Colossians is, no, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough for forgiveness. Jesus is enough for eternal life. Jesus is enough for us here and now. Colossians 2 is oftentimes, I've heard it called, the Christ hymn. It exalts Christ in a beautiful way. And so as we read Colossians 2, starting in verse 6, I want you in your mind's eye to think about who it is that we exalt when we exalt Christ. Read with me, Colossians 2, starting in verse 6. It says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human traditions and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. 
He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The thing that I want us to really grasp, to really take away as we start into this text, the first point is that the Christian should stand firm, rooted, built up, and established in the faith that Jesus' payment is sufficient. We should stand firm. We should be rooted. We should be built up. We should be established in our faith that Jesus' payment is sufficient. Jesus did it all. We are reminded of our universal problem. We each have sinned and will sin. We each have sinned. We are guilty of sin. We have sinned against God, the God of the universe, and newsflash, you're going to sin again. That is reality of being human. That is my reality. I sin. Sometimes I sin big time. Oftentimes I sin big time. You sin. You have sinned. You will sin. That is the fact of our humanity. The gospel is fundamentally the message that all have sinned. But Christ died for those sins. And placing your faith in Christ is sufficient. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 10.9 follows with an apt description of the gospel. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The gospel is fundamentally the message that all have sinned. But if we believe and confess Jesus and his salvation that he offers on the cross, we are saved. It's as easy as ABC, and that's not the song that we're going to sing at the end. Admit, believe, and confess. That's all it takes. We have a universal problem, but we have a Savior who is sufficient. Let me ask you another question. You know the answer to this question because you've all experienced this. You accept Jesus as your Savior. Your sins are forgiven, and you go on and never sin again, right? No. I wish I desperately wish that I could tell you that I hadn't sinned yet today, that I hadn't sinned this week. No. In fact, 
1 John 1, 8 and 9 says that if we claim that we are without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the truth of the gospel. Yes, we've been forgiven. We've been saved. If you accept that Jesus Christ is your savior, that he died on the cross and paid for your sins, you are a Christ follower who has been saved from sin. But you will fall into sin again. And the answer is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, the solution is Christ the Savior. In verse 6, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Just as you received him as Lord, Paul is writing to Christians, people who have accepted Jesus as their Savior, and people who are now dealing with life, dealing with life as a Christ follower that sins. And Paul says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. The power that freed you from the penalty of sin and brought you eternal life is the same power that you can apply to your life today. That power that brought you salvation is the power that is available today to forgive you for the sins that you may have already committed today, that you may have already committed this week or this month or this year. We are never without hope because the same power of the gospel that freed us from sin to start with continues to free us from sin today. The danger that Paul wanted the Colossians to avoid. Paul says, never forget that Christ is sufficient. He saved you from sin. He continues to forgive you today. In verse 8, Paul says, See that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. The idea there is we accept Jesus as our Savior. We've been forgiven. And it's easy for us to get so deep into thinking and philosophy and trying to philosophize I don't know if that's even a word. All of this thoughts and things. Paul says, no, don't be taken captive by all of that. Preach the gospel to yourself. Jesus died for your sins. And if you accept his death, that is sufficient. The idea here of being taken captive is a picture of somebody who get so involved in the deeper things that they lose track of the simple truth of forgiveness. Jesus forgives sin. One of the pictures that came to my mind as I was reading about this, uh, there's what's called the Aviation Safety Reporting System. It's a, a national system that's a joint effort by the FAA and NASA. And Uh, This is the way it works. If you're up flying and you make a mistake, like I flew through a cloud and I wasn't cleared through that cloud, it's a problem, Um, you can fill out this form. It's called the ASRS form. And you explain the mistake you made. You explain the circumstances that led you to make that mistake and um, file that form with NASA. And then a couple days later, if the FAA comes knocking and says, hey, 
we, we saw you bust that altitude. Um, we're coming after your license. You can say, I filled out the form and the inspector walks away. It's a really cool, really cool thing. And the idea is if we can self-report, we can make people safer. And so it's worth the effort. That's the picture that I have of salvation, of forgiveness of sins. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And someone comes after us and says, look at all this sin that you've accumulated. And you say, here's the form. I confessed. I've already, I've already taken this to Jesus. This is dealt with. That's the beauty. That's what it looks like for us to be rooted and built up and established in the faith that Jesus' payment is sufficient. We have our form. We simply show it to the inspector and they move on to the next person. I want to read to you the first and second verse of the song Nailed to the Cross by Wren Collective. When I stand accused by my regrets and the devil roars his empty threats, I will preach the gospel to myself that I am not a man condemned for Jesus Christ is my defense. When my doubt and shame hang over me, like the arrows of the enemy, I will run again to Calvary, that rugged hill of hell's defeat, my fortress and my victory. I want you to take a minute. Preach the gospel to yourself. All you need is Christ. Remind yourself, all I need is Christ. That's all it takes is Christ. Moving on in the passage, in verses 9 through 12, I want us to see that the Christian is brought to fullness in the resurrection of Christ. We are brought to fullness in Christ's resurrection. He is the source of our fullness. What does a full life look like? Money? No. Lots and lots of family? No. What about the ability to travel all over the place? No. That is not full life. I can tell you of people with lots of money who are empty. I can tell you people with lots of family who are empty. I have to tell you of people who have been all over the world and are empty. Full life comes from Christ. Why? Because first of all, Christ is fully God. And as being fully God. He has full divine authority. Christ supersedes us as God. The passage starts in verses 9 with the statement that all fullness, you realize that's repetitive, right? You have all, you have fullness. All fullness is repetitive. All fullness, the emphasis is on all. All means all. Full means full. Every bit of God is Christ. All fullness of deity lives in bodily form in Christ. He is fully God. We don't worship a demigod. We don't worship somebody who's just a little bit divine. You know, they're just a human, but boy, they can sure catch the football. We don't worship somebody like that. We don't worship somebody who's just a little bit smarter than we are little bit stronger than we are. No, all fullness of deity dwells in Christ. 
Because Christ is supreme, though, that means that full life is possible through Christ. Because Christ outranks us, because he transcends us, fullness can be achieved through Christ. Jesus is the one who brings about full life. Money is not going to satisfy. NFL season is starting up. If you don't believe me that money doesn't satisfy, look at retired players. They've earned more money than you can, in one day, than you will earn in your life for some of them. They're not satisfied. So many of them are empty. Other people are going to disappoint you. If the fullness of your life is accomplished through somebody else and what they do for you, you're going to be disappointed. Serving the God of the universe, the fullness of deity, Jesus Christ, that is the way to have a full life. And so the Christian is called to identify themselves with Christ, to make their identity completely wrapped up in Christ. And we have two pictures given here. The first picture that we have is in verse 11. It says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. So here's the picture. Circumcision was a Jewish tradition in which a male child at eight days old was circumcised to mark them as part of God's people. It was a physical marking that said, you are now one of God's people. Paul takes that picture and he transforms it in verse 11. And he says, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision, not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. In other words, your person is removed at that moment of salvation and you become completely identified with Christ. Your old self, your old habits, your sin nature, they all still exist, but you no longer identify with them. You no longer consider that to be who you are. I am now identified with Christ. The second image that Paul gives is the image of baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. The picture here is of immersion in water, to go from out of the water, to be immersed in the water, representative of Christ's death and burial, to be brought out of the water, representative of Christ's resurrection that brings life, identifying yourself with Jesus. The Christian is called to identify with Christ. How do you identify? Do you identify as an employee of a particular company? Do I identify as a father, as a mother, as an aunt, as an uncle, as a brother, as a sister? Those are all useful identifications. There's nothing wrong with those. 
but your identity needs to be in Christ. Your first allegiance must be to Jesus. As we go further, I want to remind you that the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ ensures our eternal hope. Romans 4.25 says he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. He was delivered over for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. Remember, justification is a legal term that means right standing with God. What Romans 6.25 is telling, sorry, 4.25 is telling us is that Jesus died for our sins and the resurrection proves that his death was sufficient. We are justified because of his resurrection. His resurrection demonstrates to us that God accepted the payment for our sins when Jesus died on the cross. The resurrection, hence, is our guarantee that's 1 Corinthians 15, 20. It says, but Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection marks the first fruits. We look forward to a future resurrection. Yes, unless the rapture comes first, each of us in this room is going to die. We'll also pay taxes, but (laughs) unless the rapture comes first, we're all going to die. But we have an eternal hope that is guaranteed by nothing short of Jesus' own resurrection that we will not remain dead. Let me read to you verse 3 of Nailed to the Cross by Wren Collective. When I stand before the throne at last, his blood will plead my innocence. I will worship him with holy hands and raise the song that never ends of Jesus Christ, my righteousness. One day we will stand before the God of the universe. But we won't stand cowering. We will stand justified because of the resurrection of Jesus. You know, a uniform makes a big difference. Have you ever met somebody and then eventually met them in their uniform? It, it kind of changes your perspective on the person. Clothing, clothing matters. So the example I have is uh, my youngest brother is, is in the Air Force, and uh, he and I are, are really close. Emily and I actually went and saw him on our vacation. And... Uh, one of the most stark transitions that I can remember, uh, I dropped him off at basic training. I drove him down there and dropped him off, and you know, he was wearing his athletic shorts and his T-shirt. And then uh, on Labor Day, I actually went and picked him up to bring him home. He had just finished basic training. And I hardly recognized him when I opened the door, not because he had physically changed at all. He had actually been working out for basic training ahead of time. So there was like no physical change, but he was in a uniform. And suddenly my little brother that cried every time we played football because I hit him too hard, (laughs) looked like he could take me and he could. What was the difference? He was clothed in those Air Force blues. He was respectable. Not just respectable, but he demanded 
respect. The uniform made the difference. When I would teach at UNL, teachers would come to me, uh, new teachers, and they would tell me about discipline problems they were having in the classroom. And the first question I always asked, because it always made a difference, so what do you wear when you teach? And they'd say, oh, you know, just what I'm wearing right now. I said, tomorrow I want you to show up in class in dress clothes. They'd be like, are you kidding me? Why do you want me to? Just wear dress clothes and watch what happens. Every time, discipline problems solved. The uniform matters. Writing collective rights. When I stand before the throne at last, his blood will plead my innocence. We will stand before God, not in our uniform, but clothed in Christ's righteousness. The blood of Christ. And God will see in us Christ. And we will be able to boldly stand before the cross, before the throne, with the cross as our defense as his blood pleads our innocence. I want you to take a minute. Imagine what it will be like to stand before the throne of God, clothed in Christ's righteousness. Not your own, but Christ's. Ultimately, in verses 13 through 15, the reminder is that the debt of sin has been canceled never again to be counted towards us, having been nailed to the cross. We were dead in our sins. Payment for their sins is made alive in Christ, and the picture could not be more stark. Dead in sins, separated from God, no relationship made alive. In Christ. When Emily and I were kayaking in the, in the caves, one of them smelled really bad, really bad. And as we got back to the back of the cave, I realized why. And our, our kayak guide said, look, there's a seal back there that's just taking a really long nap. Guess what? It wasn't taking a long nap. No matter how you tried to sugarcoat it, that seal was not taking a nap. It was never going to wake up. That's the picture of our death and decay and stink. That's our sin. But we are made alive in Christ. Death refers to separation from God. Life refers to the relationship that we have with Jesus. The relationship that we have. Though once dead, without hope. We are made alive. What does it look like to be made alive in Christ? Uh, about a month ago, Adeline asked me an interesting question. She said, who is your best friend? I thought, hmm, it's a good question. And so what I told her, I said, I don't want you to just dismiss my answer because I'm going to tell you an answer and you're going to think it's cheesy at first. So my best friend is Jesus. That's what it means to be alive in Christ for him to be the person that you go to first, for him to be the person who, whom you look forward to spending time with. We worship the God of the universe, and through Christ we have relationship with the God of the universe. He is not a God offhand. He is a God close at hand, to whom we can go to, to whom we can spend every waking moment with. All the debt occurred 
has been canceled. I love the way that this is phrased in verses 13 through 15. When you are dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. The participle there for having canceled is a Greek word that means to destroy or to obliterate. Here's the picture. You've got something and you stuff either too many or a really big firework into it. And you light it and the next moment it is gone. That's a picture in my head. And you're thinking I was probably a little bit too close. It's gone. It's obliterated. Our debt is not just erased. It is obliterated. The legal indebtedness here, the term legal indebtedness, is a reference to a a certificate in, in ancient Greece, an IOU, for lack of a better way of thinking about it. We owe God because of our sins. The Mosaic law, the Old Testament, stands against us. If you read through the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy, what you're going to find is all sorts of examples of how you fail to measure up. It's full of them, of what God's standard is and how we fail. It stands against us. It's an IOU. It says you have failed utterly. Here's your F. Take it home and show your mom. That's not, not a good position to be in, right? Not a good feeling. And Jesus obliterates it, wipes it out. It's not just that you tried to transform it into an A. It's, it's gone, eliminated. All the debt occurred through sin has been canceled, wiped out. And the cross, the object of scorn and shame, has become the greatest victory imaginable. Verse 15 having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In the ancient world, when an enemy was defeated, there was a parade. And in that parade, they would march the captured soldiers through the city streets so that everybody could see that victory had been accomplished. That's the picture that they're trying to paint, that Paul is trying to paint here. Is Jesus on the cross, defeated sin, defeated Satan, defeated the powers of evil. And now he is literally marching them through the city street as a spectacle for us to observe. Now, do those enemy combatants spit, speak taunting words, dare you to step out? Yes, I'm sure it happened in the ancient world, and it absolutely happens now. There are times where Satan or his minions may tempt you. You may be tempted. You may be frightened. They may shout their taunts at you. But I want you to understand the picture here is that they're already defeated. The victory's already won. The cross secured that victory. We need to understand that Christ has won a total victory. We are now on the other side of that victory. The parade is taking place. 
let's embrace the triumph. Listen to the chorus and bridge of Nailed to the Cross. My sin is nailed to the cross. My soul is healed by the scars. The weight of guilt I bear no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. My sin is nailed to the cross. My soul is healed by the scars. Now I'm alive forevermore. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It is finished. Sin is vanquished. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. All the glory, all the honor to my Savior, Christ the Lord. It is finished. Sin is vanquished. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. All the glory, all the honor to my Savior, Christ the Lord. That's the picture of what the cross has accomplished. It saved us from sin, but it continues to bring us fullness of life today. Are you struggling with sin? Have you sinned and you feel the weight of that sin? You've accepted Jesus as your savior, but life is hard and we fail. The taunting of the enemy maybe leads us into particular sin. The reminder that Paul writes about in Colossians chapter 2 is for us not to forget the same salvation, the same power that saved us from our sins initially and gave us the guarantee of eternal life is available right now to forgive you from any sins that you've committed, to bring you fullness of life. Sin is vanquished. Praise the Lord. All the glory, all the honor to my Savior, Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for forgiveness. And I confess sin. Father, you know I'm a sinner. You know sins that maybe I'm not even aware of. You certainly know the sins I am aware of. But I claim your forgiveness. All the fullness of deity dwells within Christ. And he took my sin, nailing it to the cross in the act of allowing his body to be nailed to the cross. Father, I pray that as individuals, as a church, that we would remind ourselves of the gospel. Remind ourselves that we are forgiven. We stand before you, having our sins obliterated, having the debt paid, living full life in you. And so I pray that we would embrace that truth as we preach the gospel to ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.